Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. In the previous episode, I talked to Yvonne Makolo, the CEO of Rwandair, about the challenges that commercial air travel is currently facing. Even though global revenues will fall by 50% this year compared to 2019, there is one silver lining, according to the International Air Transport Association, cargo. It is expected to contribute a quarter of the industry revenues compared to only 12% in 2019. Cargo revenues will in fact reach a near record $110.8 billion in 2020. On the continent of Africa, however, the movement of cargo still remains challenging, especially in landlocked countries that lack adequate infrastructure for both air and land travel. A few countries like Rwanda have welcomed innovation offered by companies like Zipline to carry small payloads to remote parts of the country using drone delivery. Evidently, this solution has limitations and only solves part of the problem. In this episode, which is the second part of a series on the future of the air transport industry, I talk to someone who may have just found a potentially disruptive idea in the cargo sector. Mr. Spencer Horn, a young South African entrepreneur and former alumni of the African Leadership Academy and Harvard University, founded his company Cloudline a couple of years ago, and it was recognized as the most innovative company in South Africa by Fast Company magazine last year. What for, you might be wondering? Well, let's just say that if you thought that airships died with the Hindenburg, as you will discover in this episode, you might be wrong. Welcome to the second of a two-part episode on the future of air transport of In The Room, the podcast. Hey, good morning, Spencer. Thank you for making time. Thank you for joining me. Good morning, Vader. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be on. Thank you for having me. Um, Spencer, I want to start with... um, a conversation you and I had uh, probably about six years ago now in Cape Town. I think you were a first-year um, analyst at McKinsey, and you came to hang out for a bit, have a drink with us, and then you told me about a crazy idea that you had, which is that you wanted to build an airship. Um, and I was like, but you are a consultant at McKinsey. You're like, well, yeah, you know, but this still is still you know at the back of my mind. And then I remember a few years later, I heard through the grapevine that you had quit your job and that you were actually working on this. Um, and you know that was obviously a, a big gap. And we will talk about all of that, um, what, what, you've, what you've done and what led you to that and make some of those choices. I want to take you back in time. I, want to tell, I would like to invite you to share with us um, a bit more about your story. Where did it all begin? Um, what was Spencer like growing up? I believe in Cape Town. <laughs> a, uh, a, a very ambitious young child um, who, who didn't always uh, conform, I think, to the 
the limitations of uh, what engineering would later impose upon him. Um, I had a I had a, a very interesting childhood and one which I'm I'm quite grateful for in in the sense that I think I grew up uh, in, a way, in a way that I sometimes describe as, as straddling worlds. I grew up, uh, I like to say, 100 meters from the, the railway tracks, but just on the right side of it. And that allowed me, from a very, very young age, to have both a perspective of what life was like, you know, to South Africans in general, but also to have access to uh, good education, to have even with a, a single working-class mother, to be able to access some of the better state resources, and especially to be able to fuel um, some of my excitement around technology. I sometimes jokingly say to people that when I saw the movie The Titanic, that I was just so in awe of the engineering work of this machine that was larger than life and the, the massive pistons and the engine room scenes and everything else. And that was one of the moments that sort of made me an engineer that got seared into my memory. Um, and I think I always had this desire to, to, to contribute to what we were doing as a society in terms of, of pushing the technological envelope. Um, and so growing up with, with that idea in mind, I went through phases that perhaps other young engineers would recognize um, of, of being enamored by different forms of transport. I had my trains phase, my steam, steam locomotives, um, cars. And um, by the time I was in high school, um, I had gone on to my planes phase, my aeroplanes phase, and it coincided very nicely with a program that was run here in South Africa, in Cape Town specifically, um, by the local Air Force. And that was a program called the Young Falcons. So when I was in the 10th grade, um, we went out every other Saturday um, to the local Air Force base at Esterplatt. But then the civilians would take us onto these uh, computers with Microsoft Flight Simulator loaded, and we would you know, learn to fly virtually. And the big treat, of course, was then getting taken up every so often in the um, in the Air Force aircraft, which included at the time um, aircraft like the Dakota, what many know as the C-47 Skytrain, and the, the Oryx helicopter, a modification of the, the Puma. And uh, this was, I think, the moment that the, the aviation and aeroplanes sort of really got galvanized as as the phase I was not going to move on from. Uh, and so at that point, I had resolved I would, I would study aeronautical engineering. Um, I wouldn't become a pilot because of my eyesight. That was one of the... <laughs> One of the limitations at the time, um, but but that I you know I would I would sort of nurture the 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 passion for for the aircraft themselves, um, and and I took that with me through the through the rest of my my time in uh, high school and eventually um, university as well. Uh, that influenced my becoming a mechanical engineer or studying that, um, and uh, and eventually, as you mentioned. Um, leaving my more corporate job for um, seeking out and returning to that uh, engineering of putting things in the sky, which is uh, what I'm doing today again. <laughs> so that's been that's been quite an exciting journey. Mm -hmm. um, 
So tell me some other time when I interview you, I will ask you about that decision to go into corporate, but we'll park that for some other time, uh, different <laughs> yes. context. Um, but for now, I'm curious to know, um, obviously, you clearly had a passion for this and you wanted to do it. But w what is the specific sort of problem um, in the world that you saw that you're like, wait, hold on, this requires a solution that... I believe I can, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uniquely positioned to, to, to bring forward. It's, it's funny you should mention the, um, the skipping over the, the corporate job there for a second. I actually have to credit my time um, in management consulting with getting to travel to uh, different parts of the world and actually getting to experience firsthand what I think is one of the greatest structural inequities uh, in the world today and and certainly the most structural in nature and that is um, the lack of infrastructure and so if if I just go back to that statement I made earlier about straddling worlds I think that's a theme that continued for me all the way even through my early career um, where I got to see some of the, the best cities and best infrastructure in the world and I got to travel to some of the rural places on market visits that had um, close to nothing Um, and the impression that that left on me really was beyond just how stark that difference can be, um, really the impact that it has on local communities. Basically seeing the way that economic activity would decline in perfect step with moving away from large centers with, with sufficient urban infrastructure. Um, And, and seeing the economic stagnation that followed that. Uh, and, and stepping away from that experience and, and beginning to do a little bit of research into it, I realized that this is actually something which affects more than a billion people in the world. More than one billion people today don't have uh, direct access um, to paved roads or, or even runways when they're in, in very remote settings. Um, And as you can imagine, that fundamentally affects the lives that they live. You and I take for granted so much every single day from the most mundane consumer goods um, to the most critical health supplies. Um, and it was shocking to, to learn and to understand just how widespread and how deep that impact was. Uh, and that's when I realized that actually if part of my mission and part of what I want to put my time and work into is solving structural inequities around the world, that this is actually a pretty important one. Um, I think there are two other angles to that that I considered at the time when I was, you know, thinking about this problem and whether to, to dedicate a part of my life to it. Um, and one was the fact that I sort of asked myself the question, well, who else is out there solving for this? Um, and I think it's one of those cases where we have some of the most brilliant minds and some of the greatest resources concentrated in places where they just don't see these problems and where they aren't really real to them. Um, even growing up in Cape Town, I had to travel out and spend several weeks out in the you know, far-flung areas of, of Kenya and Uganda to get a real sense Of, of, of what the problem was um, to, to make it real rather than just theoretical. And I think that that one spoke to me in a sense of, is Silicon Valley going to give this the attention it deserves is, is one important question to me. 
And the other was actually, well, does this position me then as an African entrepreneur in a, a particular position of strength to be tackling this problem um, because we're much closer to it and, and, and it is that much more accessible and we can bring a level of, of real-life experience. Um, and I think that was what ultimately compelled me to, to take the leap and to address it. So what is this unique solution that you're proposing? So, so our unique solution right now is to use small autonomous airships to get into the most remote and hard-to-reach places. Um, these, are, these are most often rural villages, but they include places like island nations. And very importantly also, the, the effects are often most acute in disaster-stricken areas, if you think about places that are hit by floods or earthquakes. And that includes the developed world when, when those disasters happen there. Um, and the reason we've gone with this particular approach to the problem is we were in part inspired by some of the tremendous work that's happened in, in uh, conventional drone delivery. Um, this, you know, we talk about the timeline a little bit. I was, I was, you know, sort of beginning to work on this right around the time that we saw the delivery of blood in places like Rwanda by companies like Zipline for the first time. Uh, and we were beginning to see how drones could really do in many of these places what decades of attempts at bureaucracy and governments and, and attempts at financing big infrastructural projects could not do. They bridged that infrastructural gap in a brand new way. Uh, but in this physical and hardware world, we run up upon very, very clear constraints. Um, and one thing that was quite clear was that in terms of payloads that can be carried and in terms of distances that can be achieved or the endurance of the aircraft, um, that we would start running into limitations with the drones that were being deployed. Uh, and, and an interesting thought exercise here uh, for listeners is to think about the way that if we simply scale up um, multi-rotor or quadcopter style drones or fixed wing drones, that we ultimately end up with aircraft that very much resemble full-scale aeroplanes and helicopters. Um, and that's that, you know, at the end of the day, that brings with it a whole lot of the same cost and complexity, um, logistical requirements on the ground, support equipment, maintenance, it, the list goes on. And so for us, it really was thinking about this in a way that we want to be able to get out to areas, but we have to do so in a way that's sustainable. Uh, and small autonomous airships give us the opportunity to travel incredibly efficiently because our lift comes from lifting gas on board. Um, we are able to do really long distances while using our energy only for forward travel. Um, we look to a time when we can power them using solar power. Um, and even presently, as we deploy them on battery power, it's an entirely green and carbon-free solution. Uh, and this is another crucial thing. As we look at the landscape of the technologies that we're introducing um, into Africa and into the developing world, one important question for us is, would this be acceptable anywhere else in the world? Or are we compromising on certain aspects that we would not accept elsewhere? Uh, so that's really important to us. And with this ability to not just travel very efficiently, but also very safely is, is the other big thing. Um, 
many people who look at drone delivery today remain skeptical and they say, well, can this be integrated with the airspace and share airspace with manned aviation? Will this ever be feasible within large cities and urban areas? Um, in our case, what we're dealing with are, even though they are small airships, they're still aircraft that are at least five meters long. Um, and so they're highly visible to, to other traffic for the aviation, the, uh, the fellow av geeks out there, VFR traffic, uh, folks who are looking out of the, the windshield of their Cessna, um, will be able to see where we are. And of course, we can accommodate all of the other safety features and electronics on board um, to, to integrate with other airspace. Um, and, and those that combination of of being able to carry more and fly further, as well as traveling safely and in an uncompromised way, I think for us makes us think of this as a little more of a leapfrogging opportunity. So we don't view the airship necessarily as the product, but we see the network of airships as a scalable form of infrastructure, as a distribution channel to bringing those one billion people into the global economy. And not just getting goods out into those regions, but allowing them to participate by getting locally made products either to regional or international markets. Um, and so that's something that excites us a great deal. We think we're going to land up at a um, maximum payload capacity as we scale up of about 200 kilograms. And at that point, we're useful not just for uh, very important work such as delivering food aid or emergency aid um, for the likes of, of agencies like World Food Programme and Red Cross Red Crescent, um, but also at that point being able to tap into some um, high-value consumer goods and, and artisanal goods um, and being able to create these sorts of economic channels where today they simply don't exist. So what, what, what I think many people would be curious to know is that why is it that the rest of the world hasn't been talking about airship for a long time and, and you suddenly bring this up and you're saying that this is actually a really viable solution? Right? Why was there this big gap and what is it that you're noticing now that, that people haven't thought about before? So there, there are two key things in, in airship development that are, are worth noting. But before I get to them, I think something that may surprise most listeners is that airships have been around for the past 100 years, and they've been deployed um, in, in different applications. Probably most famously is the Goodyear blimp um, that flies in the US, uh, typically over the Super Bowl, and has fulfilled both a filming and advertising role in, in that capacity. Um, but two really important things allow us to do with airships what, what has not been done before. Um, the first is that we are doing airships at a really, really small scale. And what I mean by that is that the airships that we are building here will not have the capacity to carry a person on board with a cockpit and, you know, all of the equipment they need to fly it manually, which up until very recently was your bare minimum requirement. If you, if you built an airship, you had to be able to carry, let's say, at least 150 kilograms because that would be, you know, just the bare minimum for getting the pilot inside. Um, the, the second thing that leads us to being able to do these at a really, really small scale is um, the recent advances in technology. Um, and the most important one for us by far is the... Um, 
the, the scaled down and really affordable access to the navigation technology, the autopilot systems, the propulsion systems. These all come out of the standard drone world. And as those products become commoditized, they allow this to be done on a new level of affordability and sustainability. Now, there have been for many, many years, over the past hundred years, various attempts to revive airships. And there are some very famous projects, very costly projects. Uh, and I think the most notable thing that binds them all together is that they have sought to leverage um, one of the airship's strengths is the way in which you, you gain um, you gain volume and you gain your lifting capacity in a geometric way, not in a linear way, as you scale your airship up. And so all of them have tried to build bigger and bigger airships than ever before. Um, people have been working on building airships for many decades now that would carry tons and tons. And it's a very tempting thing to want to carry in place, um, you know, prefabricated housing and buildings, oil rigs, uh, you know, wind turbines to mountaintops, you name it. There's, there's, this, there's this great desire to fulfill an unfulfilled um, aerial uh, transportation um, requirement. Uh, but what happens in this type of technology, and this is, the, the, I think, the internal hypothesis with Cloudline, is that when you scale up an aircraft, the complexity doesn't scale linearly. And so you end up having to use, and the analogy that I'll go to here, I think that most people can follow, is from the fixed wing world. To a physicist, the, if you take three aircraft, a little handheld drone, a little you know, small scale aeroplane, a Cessna, uh, which most people sort of can relate to, and a Boeing 747 which people have flown when they get on commercial jets. The, if you take those three aircraft to the physicist, they are the same thing. They fly by having air pass over the wings. They generate lift in the same way, and they need forward propulsion, balance of four forces. But to the engineer, to the manufacturer, to the material scientist, these things don't resemble each other in any way. A little handheld aeroplane can be made of styrofoam and you can power it with a little brushed DC motor and you can manufacture it in your garage with some hot wire. A Cessna, you can't make from the same materials, you can't fabricate in the same way and you can't power in the same way. And a 747, you can't do the same either. And so what you see there is that scaling of complexity and that translates to other modes of transportation too, and airship just, airships happen to be one of them. Um, so our hypothesis here really is that by coming in from the smaller end where we are dealing with the smallest possible airships first, that's where we're able to not just make relatively fast gains and, and do this as a startup, but also we are able to make the sustainable in the long run. Um, I think the, the one other, the, there are a couple of really big underlying premises to the business, but another, another question that's worth digging into is the way in which we traditionally achieve economies of scale and the efficiencies that follow that. Um, and in the, in the air transport world, that has historically been done by using a larger aircraft. So you put more on board, you perform your flight, and now the cost per unit is lower. However, 
If we go back a step up the value chain and we start looking at the manufacturing of the aircraft, and I tell you that, well, what if your aircraft is smaller and per unit carried, it isn't getting quite the same efficiency, but you can gain those efficiencies by churning them off of a, a production line. That translates then down the value chain, and it's actually possible to get your economies of scale there. Um, so that's how we make up for that with, with smaller aircraft. So if I understand correctly, it's not like there is a new technology that has appeared suddenly that you are adapting that makes um, airship suddenly more viable and, and scalable. It's just that you, you're shifting the way you're thinking about um, just the basic unit economics of, of, of how this whole, um, the, the problem that you're trying to solve rather, instead of focusing on a tech and saying that, well, here's the tech let's figure out how to make it fit into an industry. Exactly. We are trying to use as much off-the-shelf tech as possible as we start on this journey. And we are bringing together, I think it's important to note that we're bringing together some key technologies that haven't been implemented together before. Um, if I can be a little facetious just for a second, uh, I, I, you know, the very first airships or the most famous ones, the Zeppelins, um, actually their gas bags were made of, of cow intestines. And that was the state of the art at the time. There was no, <laughs> they, they weren't even using, I mean, there was no plastic, right? So um, just in terms of the, the basic types of upgrades um, that we can make today, and especially most recently, the electronics that are available, those are the big tech leaps. But as you've also said, this for us is a reframing of, of the problem and the solution from a sort of a logistical point of view too. Um, drones evidently have limitations, as we know. Um, they are affected, their ability to perform and to, to cover distances affected by a variety of things, including um, uh, obviously the, the, the most evident one being weather. Um, what limitations do, does your solution um, have and, and how contingent is it upon external factors in its ability to perform and perform efficiently? So, so weather happens to be probably our biggest operational risk. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a great point to raise because I think the, one of the things that's wonderful about working in hardware, there are many things that are stressful <laughs> from a, a startup perspective of dealing with hardware. But one of the things that is quite comforting about hardware is that because we're working in this world of physical or physics constraints, um, we can understand very clearly the trade-offs that we are making with each choice that we make with each mode. Uh, and so with airships, what we get for this payload capacity, this endurance, this passive safety of floating instead of falling, what we have to trade off for that is greater vulnerability to, to wind. Uh, and, and this is one which we, which we consider in two different ways. Uh, the first is that, and I've mentioned a little bit of the technology that we put on board, but the first is that we use um, the model electronics and modern electronics and control, software control, in order to be more maneuverable in the sky. If you think about the natural limitation that a human pilot faces in being able to deal with the, and the, the experts, and my engineers refer to this as disturbance rejection. So if you think about something like dealing with turbulence or gusts or that sort of thing, um, this is where the software and electronics are able to make uh, control inputs 
that people just can't. Uh, and so that's the one way that we deal with it in the sky. The way that we deal with this on the ground is via planning. So any aircraft out there has a certain threshold of weather in which it cannot operate. That's just true of, of any aircraft. And what we are doing is trying to understand very accurately what that threshold is for us and then planning in such a way um, that we are operating within our, our operating envelope. And the key thing for us here is if we look at the markets where we need to operate or targeting, um, typically the developing world, typically equatorial regions. Uh, many, many listeners from back in their school geography days will remember the reference to the doldrums around the equator and, uh, and the fact that sailing ships would get stuck there because of the lack of wind. This is one of the things that actually benefits us tremendously, is that we know if we have a 10-knot threshold, for example, on wind, that we will still have a 90, 95% availability in most areas around that region. And so, you know, because our use case here is not, um, you know, I need to rush over to you, Veda, right now with either your express delivery, we're not delivering a pizza that's going to get cold, we're not delivering um, an emergency dose of medicine either, but it might be something like, oh, we can't fly today at 3 p.m., what's the weather like at 6 or 7? Um, can we go tomorrow? Uh, and so that's the way that we look at that from a planning perspective. Uh, and even within those constraints, it still beats the, the status quo and the modes that aren't working. In places where the trucks just don't go, um, you know, being able to go a couple of hours later is, is still a huge benefit and a luxury. Mm -hmm. so, so how far along are you? Have you um, are you operational right now? Yes, so we, we have a team of uh, seven, including myself presently, who are busily working away on the, the tech for getting us out there. Um, we've recently partnered with UNICEF, uh, the UNICEF Innovation Office, um, to work on a solution for carrying vaccines. Uh, and so that means that we'll have not just the, the right kind of volumetric capacity on board for doing so, but also we can include cold chain. Um, and uh, so we're working on that and looking at testing and conducting demonstrations within the humanitarian drone corridors that they have set up. Uh, right now, the target for doing that um, is to get out later in the year to demonstrate that capability. Uh, so we're quite excited to be working on that. We're also very excited for the potential that that offers um, if we need to respond to COVID-19 with a vaccine, for example. Um, suddenly, this is something where we would go from you know, a need to vaccine only a very small part of the population, young children and newborns, to an order of magnitude greater in getting a vaccine out to all adults. Uh, and so the team, I think, is is quite excited and, and buoyed up um, by, by the prospect of being able to lean in and contribute um, to some of those efforts as well uh, to the outbreak at the moment. Since you mentioned the outbreak, um, I'm going to use that as a segue point to talk a little bit about um, what this outbreak, this pandemic has really meant to, to the world and obviously to the aviation industry. Um, what are some of these changes that you anticipate um, will need to happen in the business model? 
Well, I, I think one interesting one, and I'll go here in particular because my day-to-day -day is not in the airline industry, but this is this is a mechanic or mechanism that we think about at Cloudline quite a bit, which is if you consider the way in which we conduct travel by hub and spoke versus point to point. Um, and there has been a traditional drive towards efficiency, which is to channel passengers um, through hubs. And what we've seen more recently as the technology has changed and as smaller twin jet commercial planes have gained increasing range um, is a, a move towards point to point travel um, on what many people would call long and thin routes. And this has been more of a hallmark of the rise of some of the low cost airlines um, that we've seen uh, arise recently. Uh, now, in some senses, the crisis has hit some of those airlines far more immediately and acutely and with a lot less, um, they've, they've had a lot less resilience um, to the crisis, I think in part because uh, the eggs are in fewer baskets, if I may put it that way. Um, but in another sense, I think that there will be a question here around the consumer and the way they choose to travel. Will we now think about a layover in a large airport in a different way? Will we think about the time that we spend on board an aircraft in a different way? Will we think about the density of the aircraft in a different way? And I think those are all things that will be understood um, as the situation matures and, and as air travel resumes, uh, and, and as that, that consumer appetite is, is best understood. Uh, but I think there's, there's an opportunity here for, for innovation as well. Um, some of the things that people bemoan about the airline industry may be shifted and changed up. And, and one of those, for example, is the flexibility in the way that we, we book tickets. Many airlines have already come to the party on this in the near term um, and have changed those models dramatically. Uh, to maintain some relevance even as the, the crisis goes on. Um, and so it will be interesting to see on a number of these fronts uh, how things evolve. Uh, the, the, where we stand at Cloudline, if I talk about this from a sort of a cargo movement perspective, uh, we have a specific advantage in the fact that we don't burn fuel to carry fuel. And what this means is that because we're just generating our lift from, from the lifting gas. Uh, and what this means is that we have a particular advantage in point-to-point -point operations. Uh, in the commercial aviation sector, if you have to fly a plane over a longer direct distance, you have to put more fuel on board at the start of the journey. So it's flying heavier for more of the journey. So it has to burn more fuel to carry that fuel and so on. And so what placing a hub as an intermediary step on that journey does for you is it allows you to fill the airplane not to capacity on fuel, but only the fuel that you need to make it to the hub. And so the overall journey and the unit costs come down as a result. And this is why even in modern cargo uh, aviation, when it's moving internationally, uh, planes, for example, moving from Asia over to the United States across the Pacific Ocean will actually only fuel up to get as far as Anchorage in Alaska. And then they'll refuel there and they'll fly the rest of the way. And they do this not because they can't fly far enough, modern jets can, but they do it because they save fuel 
in doing so. So this is, you know, when I speak to the complexity of this stuff, you know, each of these tiny little levers can play a massive, massive role. Um, and I think probably the way that we'll we'll understand this best is as airlines take different approaches to this and we see different experiments um, and where those bear the most fruit. Uh, but this is by all means a disruption event. And, and I think we're going to see a fair bit of innovation coming from that. Mm-hmm. You talk about the customer appetite that will manifest itself um, once things sort of get back to normal. And I suppose a lot of that is going to be influenced by all sorts of new realizations. Now a lot of businesses are realizing that a lot of travel that was being done before, guess what, we can just do that over Zoom now and we don't need to, you know. So, so there's that that's going to change. I think, you know, a lot of people are also going to have questions and concerns about um, um, you know, tourism, the, the way you do tourism, right? What is it going to imply to go uh, to fly from Europe to go to Mauritius? Is Mauritius going to let me in? Is Mauritius going to ask me to quarantine for two weeks? But I get only three weeks of vacation a year, so am I going to be vacationing for only... So there are all these dimensions, right, that I suppose will influence the way um, consumers are going to, to respond. Um, irrespective of that, what are you anticipating is going to change in the consumer experience Given these new realizations now that we are having around, what is it going to take to make a plane safer to travel that it is not becoming this vehicle, a carrier of the virus, right? So well, what are your thoughts on that? But before I weigh in on that, I just wanted to, to note on your point about tourism that I think one of the most interesting contradictions or tensions that exists right now is the fact that one, we have now a little bit more consumer anxiety around traveling internationally. And yet, after being cooped up for weeks in lockdowns around the world, there is probably no greater desire to get on a plane right now and go to the other side of the world um, for many people. So I think that's one of the interesting tensions that we'll see play out um, as as the, the the sector recovers and as economies begin to open up, and I think you make a very good point around the requirements in terms of of quarantining and in terms of travel safety. I'm no expert in this area, so I won't particularly weigh in on the measures that are being taken on board uh, aircraft or what consumers uh, have comfort with. Uh, But I think one thing that will be interesting to understand is the way in which regulators go about this. Um, Because at the end of the day, the aviation industry is one which is defined uh, by regulation. And it's one of the, 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 the overlying layers that touches each one of those tiny levers in the big and complex machine. Um, And I think this is one area where finding the balance is going to be incredibly important uh, in terms of what is permitted and what allows um, a, a fast and or rather not rather not a fast but a sustainable recovery uh, because as you can imagine probably one of the uh, most devastating things that could possibly happen is for a re realizes some sort of backlash or, or second wave that can be directly attributed to air travel. This is something that would, would just erode confidence further. Um, so I think that, you know, where I land on this is 
I suppose, a, a more cautious attitude. I think the, the move and the opportunity that we have here, especially from a regulation perspective, and in, especially in countries where air travel has been reduced dramatically and airspace is a lot more open, is where we can allow, even on a temporary basis, some flexibility um, for the use of new aircraft types, such as drones. Um, this has been a very contentious subject all over the world. ICAO is in the process, it's the International Civil Aviation Organization, is in the process of working on harmonized regulations that, uh, that all signatories can adopt. Um, but this is, this is a time, perhaps, when, you know, as I've said, airspace is clear, um, unmanned flight gives us the advantage of reduced chance of transmission um, of the virus, and uh, in which the, the demand, the cargo demand, the requirement for, for medical response is clear and necessary. And I think that presents us perhaps with an interesting opportunity here um, to find the right balance in expediting some of those activities. And when you say regulators, you're talking primarily about how individual governments respond to this? Correct. So, so these are typically civil aviation authorities um, with, within governments. I believe everyone calls it the CAA, and in the US it's the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, and so these, these are the regulators who are effectively determining how anything that flies goes about doing that, whether it be an airline or, or a drone operating company. Um, and these are undertaken both at a national level but as I've mentioned, because of the global nature of, of international air travel and because aircraft need to be able to cross borders every day and airspaces and, and land in, in other countries all the time, um, there's also an international effort. And I don't want to get this wrong, but I believe ICAO may be the UN agency or branch that has the, the highest subscription level or membership out of all of, of, of countries, out of all, all UN and branches and signatories. Um, and for, for a very, very clear reason, it, is, it epitomizes the cooperation that's necessary for an industry to work. Um, and very interestingly, we're seeing in the news now, I also won't veer to comment on this, places where at a national level, things like air rights are being revoked. And, uh, and I think that's a very interesting uh, development that we'll, we'll see coming because this is also something that's had a, a very fine equilibrium since the end of the Cold War. There's been pretty much an implicit assumption that, you know, this is something that will be maintained. Uh, cooperation in the air uh, is, is understood to be absolutely necessary. Um, but within the current circumstances, as if the situation were not threatening enough, um, we're now seeing, uh, you know, further, further potential destabilization in, in, in that kind of air access between countries. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that evolves too. Um. I think a question that's on most of our listeners' mind right now is, is there going to be a new normal and what does that look like and when can I start traveling again and how expensive is it going to be? <laughs> so so as, as a non-airline person, I think this one is, is particularly difficult for, for me to answer. I think we can 
safely assume that air travel is not going away. I think it's clear that in today's interconnected world and in a place where we are trending towards more interconnectivity, um, air travel is absolutely crucial. Uh, it is, it, it, yeah, it's an enabler and an economic enabler that we simply cannot do without. So I think it's quite safe to say that we will see its return. Uh, a lot of that will be contingent on how quickly we manage to deal with, contain, and treat um, the virus and the outbreak. Uh, because, of course, this is, this is one of the instances where the knee-jerk reaction from countries and perhaps the justified reaction from countries is to keep borders closed in order to protect themselves. Um, so I think following a, the development of a treatment or vaccine or being able to get the virus under control, I think that's the situation in which we're going to see a robust return of air travel. And if the economic recovery elsewhere, what many have described as a V-shaped sort of phenomenon, in, in that just as quickly as it's, it's gone off the cliff, it's, it's recovered. Uh, if we see that kind of recovery due to the pent-up demand, I think we will probably see the same thing happening in the airline industry. What will be different in that new world is who's managed to survive the crisis. Uh, and I think that's very interesting because when these uh, knocks to the industry happen, and typically the smaller players with fewer cash reserves or less government support are the first ones to go, um, we see a consolidation in the industry. Smaller players get uh, merged into, into bigger ones. Uh, and that can affect consumer options and optionality as well. And I think one of the things that as a Cape Tonian I was particularly worried about is we've got fantastic folks working on our air access initiative here and we've gone in the past probably three years or so, three or four years, we've had, you know, it feels like a dozen direct routes, um, those direct point-to-point -point long and thin routes that I mentioned earlier, added to Cape Town, where we've always had to fly through other hubs before. So suddenly, as a city of four million on the tip of Africa, we, we could have direct access to places like New York City, um, for example. And that was incredibly exciting. I think that the question will now be, as we see a consolidation and a trimming down of capacity, the retiring of a lot of older aircraft, do we see an immediate return of those routes? And or, do we, or, or does that recovery come more slowly? Are we going to be more reliant on those the, the sort of trunk routing through hubs? And more broadly, interestingly, in Africa, what does that mean for our connectivity? Right, We, we have had to look at for, for where we want to conduct some of our services in places in West Africa, for example, look at the flight options for getting there, even prior to the crisis. The, the most direct routing for me out of Cape Town uh, into West Africa and the cities there has been via Paris, um, which is, is kind of crazy because you're backtracking, you know, pretty much almost half your distance um, at that point. But it speaks to the state of the connectivity that we've had um, within Africa. And, uh, and that's something that I certainly hope we can, you know, at least in a 
uh, when we get to our new normal um, that doesn't get neglected and doesn't fall behind. But, you know, I think that's one thing that, you know, I really hope we can resolve is air access within Africa is not where it should be right now. And we're seeing very, very valiant efforts from a number of places um, to improve that. But I think it is going to be something we, we cannot afford to neglect if we want to make sure that the, it, it acts as the economic enabler um, that it can be. And it's the exact same thing. It's the exact founding premise and hypothesis of Cloudline is that by bringing access, by creating a distribution network, uh, we can enable economic activity that can't happen today. Um, so I do hope we see that in our new normal. Any words of comfort for our listeners who love traveling? <laughs> I am one of them. I I I, I love traveling uh, myself and and yearn for for a time when we can we can resume. Um, I th I think it would be to say that although this is something which is new and sudden, and you know we don't necessarily know how to deal with in the in the immediate term. I think we can take comfort in the fact that um, the world has seen uh, viruses and outbreaks and, and pandemics of this kind before um, and that we have managed to deal with them and that once we do that, once we get the fundamental handling of the outbreak under control, uh, then our air travel will be able to resume and we'll be, we will once again see the skies that we once did. And hopefully in the very near term, it'll be a little cheaper to travel as airlines try to get uh, bums in seats again. So that's the, the, the silver lining that we, we hope for. Spencer, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate your um, uh, ever so wise and thoughtful perspectives on a number of things, um, especially in the sector. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Veda. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you. Whether well, we'll soon be looking up to the skies for Cloudline airships or not, it is clear that innovation is needed in the air transport industry. Despite the global pandemic, we can rest assured that this is not an industry that is going to die. It may be hurting currently, but it will certainly bounce back, and hopefully soon. However, fundamental changes in its business and operating models are necessary. So, if like Spencer Horn, you are an entrepreneur and innovator, now might be a good time for you to enter the game and fly with your ideas. Pun intended, of course. Join us next time, In The Room, as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.